0: Our text for this Lord's Day comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Pay close attention, this is God's holy word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. Thus far the reading of God's word, uh, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the account of the mighty acts of our savior Jesus on our behalf. We pray that as we reflect on what he has done for us, that your spirit would guide us into this truth, and that you would deliver us from everything that is not helpful, every error, uh, that you would focus us on the truth, deliver us from every distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why do rock bands sell t-shirts and why do people buy them? Why, Why would you want the name of a band on your chest? Well, it's because when people discover something that they love, something that moves them, something that brings joy to their lives, there's a fundamental human desire to take part in what is happening, to develop a community around this wonderful thing and to be marked by, to be known by your love for this thing so that when you see somebody else out in public wearing the same band's t-shirt, you say, ah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we got something in common. Uh, we we share the same love of the of the same thing. We want to be marked and known by our love of this thing. So to have the name of a band on your body, on your shirt, on your hat, or on the bumper of your car is to have a sense of ownership or participation in this thing that you enjoy and you're you feel like part of the band even though you can't play guitar necessarily or the drums you may not even be a great singer that's not the point you feel like you belong to the band and the band belongs to you that's my band that's that's my group there's this mutual affection and identification you assume, and you don't mind who knows it. I am my beloved, and my beloved's is mine, is the way that we, we think about this. Sports fans do this and, and they do it obnoxiously, and I'll own this because I do this. We say we, you know, we won the Super Bowl, we won the NCAA tournament, we we won the World Series, we won. We've got some really great players, or we haven't really done a good job at recruiting, that kind of thing. Well i 'm not on the team, and i don't have any influence over the team at all um, but I, but I have been a fan longer than any of the players have been alive if that's worth anything i don't i don't know if that's if that's something i've got a cardinal's hat that is older than the entire outfield um, so do I get to say we if uh if does that count um, The point is is that we're drawn into a participation of the things that we love. It's not enough to just enjoy them at a cold distance to keep them at arm's length. I want to have ownership. I want to have this identification or participation in it. I love this novel. I love this movie. This story has drawn me in, so I feel like I'm a part of it, and I have some connection to other people who enjoy this thing also. Now, the problem with this is that all of these fandoms leave us wanting, and they can be poor substitutes or counterfeits for real beauty and real community and real purpose. We want something transcendent, we want something perfect, but these things can't get us there all the way. They inevitably let us down, and the way you know this is you go on any fan forum um, on the internet, and you have people who say they love this thing who are also brutally criticizing this thing, that, that that last episode was garbage, that last movie, how oh, they missed out on all of this, the last album was trash, and they'll tear down the thing that they say they love. And likewise, the band may say, oh, we love our fans, the team appreciates the cheers, the novelist is thankful for the book sales, but they don't really know you. They, they don't even know your name. In the end, they're doing what makes them happy not what makes you happy, which is why they make the decisions that they make. They don't. They don't ask you before the next film to to look over the script. Do you like what we're doing with these characters that you love? They don't care. That's not what it's about. And in the end, uh, they're working for themselves. So. I'm not saying in this that we can't enjoy good things. No, not at all. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't share good things with other people, of course not. We, we ought to have big hearts that enjoy all kinds of good things and give thanks to God for all these things. But we hold them lightly because we recognize that they're imperfect in a fallen world. And at best, these communities can only mirror the true union and fellowship that we have with the triune God and with his people. These longings that we are trying to fill with our entertainments are only fully satisfied in the greatest story ever told. And in fact, by loving the the true story in the real community, it only enhances our ability to love other good things. I'm not being silly. I'm not just trying to draw some silly illustration from, from following and loving a band to the community and fellowship Uh, that we have in Jesus. No, I I think there is something really there in these infatuations and these fandoms. There is a need, a human need for community and a sharing and a delighting in a good thing. That is where there is a longing. Who put that longing there? Why do we have that? Well, mankind was created to be in intimate proximity to God. God gave Adam and Eve this close fellowship with each other in the garden and with himself. He visited them personally. And that nearness to him is the basis of our knowing and our loving and our enjoying each other. In fact, we can't love each other properly apart from fellowship with the triune God. So we have a union and a fellowship and an enjoying and a delighting in each other because of our relationship to him. Not only that, but we also have a right connection to ourselves. We have a proper evaluation of ourselves when we know God. A a, a view which is not vanity. Um, We don't become vain to look how great we are. Nor are we self-loathing. I don't hate myself. But, but a deep gratitude for how God has made us and a resting in his good creation. So a proper and right and a near fellowship with God brings us closer together. It puts us in a right orientation toward ourselves and also it gives us a, a real, uh, a, a right uh, alignment with creation um, that we're not under creation. Eve and Adam submitted themselves to the serpent. They submitted themselves to the beast where they were placed in dominion over the beast. And so they serve the creation and idolize the creation. That was part of the fall. But in our relationship to God, we have this right perspective on creation and creation order, which includes not only mountains and sunsets and beaches and rivers and and animal life, but it also includes, God's good creation also includes the product of human creativity, which includes music and art and, and, and literature and all these good things that, that a pri- proper and right orientation toward God gives us an evaluation of these things where um, we're not slaves to them, but we are over them and can give thanks for them and um, offer our thanksgiving up to God for them. You see, communion with God an intimate proximity to God by the Spirit is the essence of real belonging. Nearness to God is the foundation of all relationships. And friendship with God makes peace possible between men. I'll say that the other way. If you don't have friendship with God, you can never have real and lasting friendship among men. Every time humans try to put these unions together, they always fall apart. That's why conspiracies, God laughs at those because they can never, they can never maintain, they can never hold together. It always, always falls apart um, at some point. So, so friendship with God makes peace possible between men, it gives us a proper evaluation of ourselves, and it gives us a proper orientation toward creation, but That fellowship to each other, ourselves, and the world is broken when our relationship to God is broken, which it has been by sin. Sin has cascading effects in every realm of our existence. Our peace with God is broken. Our concord with each other is severed. Our gratitude with ourselves is destroyed. Why do people hate their bodies? Why do they hate their existence? Why do they hate everything about themselves so they try to change everything? It was because they don't have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God is the basis of our gratitude for ourselves, and then we serve the creation. We idolize things in creation rather than taking dominion over them. Everything, because of sin, everything has fallen apart. Everything is disintegrating. Everything is under the curse of death, and there is nothing that any of us can do about it. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves. Everything is under the curse of death, and we have been so weakened and our understanding so corrupted, our minds so darkened, that we cannot resolve our own problems. God himself must move to intervene. God must initiate our rescue from death to cleanse us from the sin that has killed all of our relationships and to set us right again with proper connections to himself, to each other, to ourselves, and to creation. Now, the good news is, God has done this. God has taken the initiative. He has moved toward man to set things right through a series of events in history through the person of Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus, these monumental historic events that happen in his life, The story of Jesus is called the gospel. And this story, the gospel, is a story that you have real participation in, not superficial. This is not a fandom where you only have a tenuous association because you bought a ticket or you have the hat or you identify yourself with a t-shirt. No, you have an ongoing, vital, living interest in these events because they were done for you. You have a relationship to the man at the center of these events. You have been restored to fellowship with God through the events at the center of the gospel. Over these last couple of weeks and for the next following weeks, Pastor Jones and I have been working on this series, What Do We Believe About? And then we fill in the blank. What do we believe about God? Last week, what do we believe about the Bible? Today, I wanna talk about what we believe about the gospel. It's important every once in a while to kinda of hit reset and go on record and say, no, I don't wanna assume anything. I don't wanna assume that you know what the gospel is. I don't wanna assume, assume that you know what we believe about the Bible or heaven and hell or baptism or the Lord's Supper or the church and these things. So it's important occasionally to go on record and to say this is what we believe about these things. So today, what do we believe about the gospel? Well, the, the Apostle Paul shares the salient facts of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing a letter to the church at Corinth, in the city of Corinth, and he says, he opens this section, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. He's acknowledging, he's already preached it to them, but he's gonna declare it to them again. And this thing that he declares to them, he calls the gospel. The word gospel, as it was used in the ancient world, was an announcement. A gospel is a, proclamation of important events. So after a battle, a man comes running back from Marathon to Athens, and he comes back bringing good news that at Marathon, the uh, tiny Greek army had defeated a larger Persian army. And he comes running back and he says, guess what, good news, we won, we were victorious. Um, The gospel is the equivalent today of when you see the words flash across the screen um, breaking news, right? Or, or a long time ago, in the old days, you know, you're watching the Dukes of Hazard, or you're watching, you know, Knight Rider, or Hee Haw, and then it's, uh, we interrupt this broadcast to bring you this special report. Well, that was almost never good news, right? And, and you were missing your show. But this word, gospel, is the Greek word, euangelion, that, those first two letters, eu, that always means good. So a eulogy, what is a eulogy? That's a good word. A logos is a word, a U is a good word. Anytime you have the E-U, so this is a good message. This word gospel is specifically and emphatically good news. You won't believe what just happened. You don't believe what I just have to tell you. This is the best thing ever. And so Paul uses this word, good news, victorious news, to describe these events, which he said, you've already received you've heard this before, you've gotten a good report, you've trusted that this account is true. You didn't reject it, you received it. And then he adds, uh, you've received it in which you stand. These events are the basis of your reality. Your whole world is established upon the foundation of these works of Jesus being true and powerful. So they continue to be relevant. It It doesn't get old. And he continues, not only have you heard these preached, you've received them, you stand in them by which you are also saved. Our deliverance from sin and death and temptation, our deliverance unto life and blessing and peace is grounded in the truth of this good news. And then he lists several key events in this story that he calls the gospel, the good news. And we're just gonna take this a couple words at a time um, briefly. First, he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ, who is that? He's the promised Messiah. The name Christ, um, that's not Jesus' last name, that's his title. Um, he is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. He is de- the anointed deliverer, the appointed deliverer that God has promised ever since Genesis chapter 3, back when Adam and Eve were restored after their sin. God promised to send a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. This, Paul says, this Jesus is that Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one that the Psalms say will rule the nations. He is the one whose death, as Isaiah said, whose death will atone for the sins of Israel and that he will bring renewal and wholeness to the created order. The creator God has promised to send him to crush the seed Uh, I'm sorry, to crush the head of the serpent and to deliver his people from from the power of Satan. And this is the one who's come. And he says this Christ died for something. He didn't didn't die for nothing. He wasn't just the victim of a cruel, tyrannical government. His death was efficacious for the working out the purposes of God. His death accomplished something what? Uh, Paul says Christ died for our sins. My sins, which are individually, every single one of them, my sins are high-handed acts of rebellion against a holy God, and each one of my sins deserve death. Each one of my sins deserve the outpouring of the righteous, holy wrath of God. Every single one of my sins. And your sins are each a high-handed act of rebellion, against a holy God, each one of them deserving God's wrath. And all of the sins of everyone from Adam to today have thus separated us from God. Our sins stink to high heaven. Our sins are obnoxious and awful. And because he, God, is holy and just and righteous, he can't simply dismiss this rebellion He can't ignore it. All lawbreaking must be judged. But God is also merciful and he's also gracious. So in Christ, God takes upon himself the penalty for sin. Jesus comes and fully obeys his father's law. He fulfills it perfectly. And then he offers himself up as a unblemished, the perfect unblemished sacrifice for sin, paying the debt that we owed because of our rebellion. The Son, the Christ, satisfies the justice of the Father. He discharges our debt. He purchases our reconciliation. He opens up the way for our everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Is that good news or what? I mean, good news, oh my, that's, that's everything. Everything that we ever needed or wanted or required. But don't skip too quickly, don't miss those three little words that all this happened for our sins. The reason this all is necessary is because of our sins. Every one of our sins is a sin for which Christ died. And our forgiveness, our restoration, our deliverance from those sins is possible because of his suffering. Our drawing near to God is possible because he was separated from God. And so the right response to that is not uh, poor Jesus. That's that's not what we're after. It's not um, pity. That's not what he wants. The right response to that is a reverence and a sobriety and a gratitude and a worship and a deep hatred for our sins. Our sins are not whoopsies, our sins are not uh-ohs, right? We, we have this very casual cavalier to our own sins because we're so good at sinning. We're so good at making excuses for our sins. We're so good at covering for our sins. We have an internal lawyer that, that we keep on retainer that always justifies everything that we've done and proves to ourselves that well, it's really not that big of a deal. And also, um, I'm gonna go ahead and sin, but I'm just gonna confess my sins on Sunday and it's gonna be okay, God's gonna forgive me. That's how we view our sins. We, we treat them as if, oh, it's just, you know, eh, whatever. I mean, it's that thing, it's excusable. You know, my sin is just the logical thing that I had to do to get out of the situation that I was in because I was backed into a corner. And you would understand if you were in my shoes. You would have done the same thing. You see, we, we have this very casual, very, very cavalier attitude toward our crimes against a holy God. We cannot begin to properly assess the height and breadth of God's mercies toward us, what he has done for us. We can't properly assess that unless we first come to understand the depth of our own sin, and what a dire, desperate situation our sins have put us in. It's not popular to tell people that they're guilty. No one wants to hear that their problems may be the result of their sins. Do do you know why you're in the situation you were in? Well, because you've sinned, and, and, and here's why you're dealing with this. Because everybody wants to view themselves as a victim of other people's mistreatment. Or that God has just dealt me a bad hand in life, and all of this mess is really his fault. But the most loving thing that we can do for ourselves and for our children and for others is to come to grips with our blame and our shame and our guilt, to own it. I have sinned. God has told me he does not like this. This does not please him. God has prohibited this. God has forbidden it. And I did it. I did it. And I I own it. And I confess it. And then to be so disgusted with our sin that we turn from it. Our sins required the death of the innocent, spotless lamb of God. Look at the cross, look at the suffering and the death of Jesus. That is what every one of your sins and my sins deserved. And Paul continues, he says, this happened because of our sins and he was given for our sins and for the redemption of our sins. And he continues, he was buried. That's an important part of the story. We confess this every Lord's Day in the creeds. We say, and, and was buried, and we're gonna do it in a few minutes as part of the Nicene Creed. We say he was buried because he really died, which means he was fully man, which means that he really suffered. Uh, the Lord Jesus didn't swoon on the cross. He didn't pass out. Uh, he went into the darkness of death. He went into the grave And what that means is that there is nothing fearful or troubling or stressful in the human experience that Jesus can't relate to. Are you terrified at the thought of pain or or conflict? Do you hate the thought of conflict? Um, Does it it bother you to be falsely accused? Um, Have you experienced betrayal? Have you you had the pain of, of being betrayed? You understand Jesus has been there through every single one of those things. He's been there. Um, uh, have you gone through physical and mental and spiritual suffering? Yeah, yes, uh, it's, it hurts, it's bad. Jesus has been there too. Jesus has done it. Are you afraid of dying? That's the number one fear, right? The fear of death is huge. Well, Jesus has already been there. Are you afraid of the grave? Is the grave terrifying? Jesus has been there too. And through every one of these things, he's gone without sin, And through it, he has won the victory over death and the grave. As Paul continues, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus rose bodily by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The father overturned the verdict of death and he crowned his son with life. And and he continues, he was seen by Cephas, who's Peter. Then by the 12, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical event, it's not a a metaphor, it's not a parable, um, it's it's not a myth, it was a historical event revealed to many witnesses as we discussed last week. There it is in brief, there it is the gospel, the story of the saving death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news of what God has done that we could never do for ourselves to send his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, And this is not a story that you can keep at arm's length. You must decide whether this is true or not and whether you're going to stake your life on the claims of this Jesus. Uh, this is a story that summons you to come and grab hold of it. It's a story that comes with an invitation to make it your story. How many times do we read in the New Testament to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Over and over and over. Confess your sins and trust In Him. What do we mean by this? Repent and believe. Repent means turn from your sins, put away your idols, despise that heart of rebellion that keeps you out of fellowship with your creator. That's what we mean by repent. By believe, we mean trust in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, who came to give his life for you and to die in your place, who right now reigns supreme over all creation and because of this deserves your gratitude. He deserves your worship, and he deserves your obedience. This is the only way. To repent and to believe is the only way to be forgiven and to find eternal life. There is no other way. There's no other plan. There's no other truth. There's no other life to be had. Now, I assume you've all done this. I assume that you have confessed your sins. In fact, we all confessed our sins just a few minutes ago. And I assume that you've declared your trust in Jesus, as we're all going to do again, in just a few more minutes. But there is a possibility that you're kind of sleepwalking through all of this. There's a a slight possibility that you're not taking any of this seriously. This is all dead formalism to you, and it doesn't mean anything to you. And if that's the case, I invite you to take a self-evaluation to see whether or not you actually believe any of this stuff is true, or whether you're just, um, uh, uh, just paying lip service to all of it. Have you confessed your sins? Have you put your trust in this man who died for your sins and who right now reigns over all of the cosmos? Have you thrown yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust him entirely? If you need help with that, if you don't understand or you have questions about that, I am available. You come and seek help. Uh, but, But it really is not more complicated than that. Really, it is very, very simple. Confess your sins and throw yourself Uh, on the mercies of Jesus and trust him with everything. Now, of course, you may say, yeah, I've done that. I have, uh, sincerely, I have done that. I've repented, I've trusted, I have received the gospel, I stand on the gospel, I am saved by the Christ of the gospel. What now? Well, let's back up to verse one in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, check, it's been preached, which also you receive, check, yep, and which you stand, I stand on the gospel. I, I, I don't know where else to go. It's my truth, it's my reality. By which you're also saved, yes, I, I'm delivered, I'm saved, I'm, I'm cleansed, I'm washed. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So what's left for you to do? Well, what, what's left for you to do is to hold fast, to, to hold fast the fruit of a genuine saving faith, not empty, casual, vain lip service. The fruit of a genuine saving faith, the evidence of a living faith is to hold fast to that living word. In other words, we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other and we keep reminding ourselves of this truth. We remind ourselves and each other that we serve a holy God, that sin cannot be in his presence. We remind ourselves of the depth of our sin, that apart from the the cleansing work of Jesus, we are enslaved to sin, lost without hope, that sin remains in us and that the sin still wages war against the spirit of God. So we have to continually confess it, to repent, to turn from our sins, to put off the old man and put on the new man and put on the new creation. We remind ourselves of what Jesus secures for us in his sinless life and his atoning death. We remember that He's granted forgiveness. He has redeemed us from a debt that we cannot pay. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin. He has reconciled us to the Father. He has taken the punishment we deserve and His righteousness is imputed to us. So when the Father looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son and we are adopted as sons and daughters. We remind ourselves of our status in Christ. We believe that we're forgiven. We trust in the promises of the gospel, that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, that we are accepted in the beloved. These are the things that we rehearse and remind ourselves and remind our children and remind each other constantly. Holding fast to the gospel means repeating it and rehearsing it and preaching it to ourselves. How often are our troubles the result of either a failure to repent or a failure to trust. You think you don't need the gospel every day? How many of your problems right now, how many of your difficulties are the result of either failure to confess your sins or failure to trust? Either we're not taking responsibility for our sins and turning from them, or we're not resting in And and hoping in the truth of our forgiveness and our status in Christ. In fact, we can multitask, we can both fail to repent and fail to trust at the same time. You know, we've we've got that down as well. But how many of our problems are the result of not preaching the gospel to ourselves and remembering that we are to both repent and trust, and this is why we must rehearse these things and live in them, to stand in them. The gospel is our environment. The gospel is our continual hope um, and trust. We, We rehearse the gospel continually, not only by private meditation, but the gospel comes to us externally and communally. In fact, I would say that's the way it primarily comes to us, externally. We continue to hear and rehearse the gospel through reading and singing and celebrating it together. We embrace the events of the gospel every year from Christmas to uh, Epiphany to Good Friday to Easter to Ascension to Pentecost to Advent. Uh, It's not like you say, well, yeah, I celebrated Christmas one time. It was a lot of fun. It was good, but I already did that. I don't need to do it again. Why do we do it every year? Why do we come back to Easter and rejoice in the resurrection every year? It's because we need to rehearse and remind ourselves and to order our lives around these important events in history. We number our days by the events in the gospel account. You hold fast to these truths, which is why you don't say, oh, I've got that. I, I, okay, I, I just, I'm ready to move on. I don't need to rejoice in that anymore. This is why you don't check out and say, I've heard it all. I've got it. That's why you look up here when I tell you that your sins are forgiven. When I'm telling you your sins are forgiven, please don't, you know, fiddle with your bulletin or, you know, kind of wander, or look out the window or whatever. It's because I'm speaking gospel truths to you and you need to hear that you are forgiven and you need to know that you are forgiven. That's why when God's word is being read, you pay attention. You don't you don't talk, again, you don't, you don't stare out the window. You listen and you hear it. Our corporate participation in the gospel is not academic. This is not dead ritualism. If this were dead ritualism, I've got plenty of other things I could be doing on Sunday. But that's not what this is. This is not, this is life. Hearing and speaking and rehearsing the gospel is grounding ourselves in reality doing this, grounding ourselves in the reality of these events while the world around us is living a fantasy. They're they're destroying themselves, believing in lies. And so we we're not gonna hear this lived out, we're not gonna see this proclaimed and believed and trusted in, apart from the body of Christ. Why we need this. So this living faith, this faith in the truths of the gospel, in the claims of Christ This faith is the source of our obedience. Our trust, our redemption precedes our obedience. We don't work our way into God's fellowship. We cannot earn his grace. We don't earn or merit his forgiveness. We can't even exercise faith apart from the work of his spirit On us, we're dead in sin apart from God sovereignly opening our ears to the gospel, giving us a heart of repentance, giving us his spirit. We need God to initiate. Uh, So in our lost state, we could never earn anything. What could we earn? We could never meet him halfway. We can't even meet him 1% of the way. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. What is not of yourselves? What is the antecedent of that? Faith. The faith is not of yourselves. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It, what? Faith is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. His giving us life gives us faith and this faith precedes our obedience. And Paul continues, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our obedience is in every way a necessary response to the gospel. A living faith is an active faith. And it's by our holding fast, it's by our steadfast obedience that we get to participate in the ongoing epic that is God's redemption of the world through Christ. We get a part to play. We join the team. We're not spectators. We don't just get a t-shirt, we're drawn into the story and we participate in the proclamation of Christ's victory over sin and death. We get to do that through word and deed. Uh, One more reference, 1 Peter 2. Peter says, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. The end of all of this, the purpose of this is our obedience, our righteousness, our reorientation to God, living in a near proximity to his fellowship, restoring our relationship to each other, a proper evaluation of ourselves and a proper use of his creation. It all gets restored by the gospel. Therefore, we never outgrow our need to hear the gospel, because we never outgrow our need to repent, and to trust, and to obey. In your worst days of suffering, in your days of turmoil and frustration, the gospel will remind you that Jesus also suffered, that Jesus also, through suffering, obeyed without sin. It will be your hope and your defense and your rock in the midst of suffering and frustration. On days when you've sinned and on days when you've failed, the gospel reminds you of the persistent, unrelenting grace of God towards you. On days when things are going well and we're blessed and we're victorious and it feels like everything we touch turns to gold and it feels like everything is going right, on those days you need the gospel also because the gospel aligns your heart with the truth that you are thriving solely on the righteousness of Jesus and not on your own. You're thriving on the basis of his goodness and his mercy towards you, not your own. There is not a single day of your life from now until your death, there's not a single day of your life where it's safe to forget the gospel. It's not, it's not. By doing that, by repeating it and rehearsing it, we nurture those bonds of real community. We understand who we are. We properly used God's creation and we have this actual belonging and meaning and a connection to a story that has eternal weight and eternal relevance. That is what we believe about the gospel. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we give you praise and we give you thanks for this amazing story, these things that you have accomplished through your son. And we ask you to give us your spirit that we might remember to preach this to ourselves and to our children and to each other continually, without ceasing. And so may we rest. May we repent and trust and obey every day. In Jesus' name, amen.